Hello and welcome into another episode of Gifted Kid Messy Adult, the podcast where potential went to die. I am your host, Ellie Michaels. I use she, her. Uh, I am your host, Jessica Michaels, and I use she, they. And today we're talking about neurodiversity in some of its less recognized forms, uh, particularly epilepsy and how it's affected our producer, Matt. Say hi, Matt. Yes. Hi, I'm Matt Elfring. He, him. We're doing it. We're making things happen. It's great to be on the show and not in the chat saying, move on to this subject next. <laughs> but that, that leads me to the question of who is then going to tell you when you need to move on to the next subject? Like, do we have to bring in a producer for producer Matt in order to get this done? Like, how far does this chain go? Um, I don't know because I'm not as used to being on this end of, of a person being asked questions. I'm much more used to with my years in journalism being the person asking questions. So this is a little flip about, and I'm excited to be a part of the flip about with both of you. (laughs) Well, first let's start with maybe how we came to be on the show together in the first place. So maybe can you give us a little bit of history, you and your background, and we'll start there. Yeah. uh, So I think 20 years ago, uh, Jessica and I met at a little restaurant called Springview, where Springview was where we all hung out and smoked cigarettes and drank coffee. And at some point, you told me you were writing stand-up comedy, and you were sitting behind me and a bunch of my buddies. And I was like, I want to do stand-up. And I had like notebooks and we'd write jokes together. And as mentioned, we would never talk. We would maybe pass the notebooks to each other and say like, does this work? Does this work? Uh, And then eventually I moved away to Chicago. I came back. uh, I did comedy in Chicago for a little while. And then I came back and did stand-up here. As uh, many people know, I did character work mainly. And then that's where I met Ellie for the first time. And... Jessica was there, but I was in a weird click of like the cool kids comedy table, which I always thought was weird because I was not cool, but people liked that I was being like a magician on stage or a guy that did lip syncing to his own comedy track as an insult comic. I mean, are you even good enough for imposter syndrome? Man, if we're talking imposter syndrome, that's been my whole life as a writer. (laughs) Very common neurodivergent trait. It's something a lot of us struggle with, yes, especially, it, you know, those of us like us who don't deserve any success or real uh, accolades at all. No, even doing this, even producing this show, or even though I've been doing podcasting since 2004 before it was really a thing, I still feel like, like, nah, I'm terrible at this. I'm not. But like, I'm like, oh, this is, I'm, I shouldn't be doing this for a living. This is a bad idea for me. I should <laughs> go back to working retail and selling toys like I did in 2002. <laughs> So we obviously connected, we connected through comedy and our uh, love of comedy, if not talent at, we'll let other people decide (laughs) that. Um, But um, when we started to talk about doing this show and focusing on neurodiversity and, and gifted kids, I immediately thought I want to have producer Matt on the mic occasionally for this show and I think that may be be surprising to some people because I guess on the surface necessarily I don't know that you would consider yourself or had considered yourself neurodivergent before we started talking can you talk a little bit about that and and why maybe we feel you fit on this show as a guest uh yeah like I had hid I was diagnosed with epilepsy at 18 my first seizure was the first day of senior high school and i was in the hospital for a few days and i came back to school and people are like matt you'll do anything to get out of school and my response (laughs) was like f you like this is a traumatic event i hate you (laughs) um but a year later because everybody gets one seizure that's kind of the rule of neurologists (laughs) you get one seizure unprovoked like on the house and then so everybody gets one on credit Okay, yeah. got it. All right. The so first I seizure's use- free. Yeah, That's first great. one's free, kid. Yeah, I haven't used that one yet. So it's good to know that I still have that in my back pocket for when I need it. Okay, cool. But then cool. the dealer of your brain comes back. It's like, no, I want more of this terrible experience. <laughs> I was having seizures like once a year. I was on meds that were, I thought were working, but I had a bad neurologist. 
them that bad neurologist retired and suggested a good neurologist. And I didn't know that there were people that were good at this job and would try new things and get, (laughs) you know, get me on meds that weren't made in 1950, which is a real thing. Healthcare really peaked in 1950, you know, when women weren't people and black people didn't exist. It's just, that was really the height of medical technology in America. Here you go, sir. Pop these two Tegretol in your mouth and you'll be fine. And I wasn't fine. Um, So so essentially they put you on opium, laudanum, uh, cocaine, and uh, snake oil from what I am gathering. It was a decent medication, but it came to the point where my new neurologist was like, hey, you can take this and it will stop your seizures. For the most part, you'll have breakthroughs, but uh, your liver enzyme count is really messed up. And because you're older, like this makes your bones brittle. I'm like, well, I don't want to, I fall all the time. I don't want to like break a hip at 44, 45 as I get older. Uh, So we're in the process of switching medications, but I've dealt with uh, depression my whole life. And so new medications have really screwed me up depression-wise. And this has been a terrible year. As anybody knows, I got let go from a job after working in journalism for 13 years. And now I'm on medication that stabilizes my mood, which is super rad. I didn't know you could go, like, a day without thinking about killing yourself. And that's not a joke. That's a real thing. But it's also kind of funny to me. Mm -hmm. Well, it has to be. it It has to be. You have to deal with pain and suffering because your brain doesn't work regularly with jokes because that's the only mm-hmm. way you'll survive in the eternal words of mark Marin, this has to be funny it this has, to, has be. to be funny uh but i'm on like mood stabilizing pills now and like now i go now i don't have suicidal thoughts which is i'm like i feel like a normal person except for the fact that i could still seizure at any moment <laughs> <laughs> Well, apparently so could all of us. And I didn't know that because apparently the medical community is like you get one. And that is that's, I think, the fact I'm going to take take with me today. No matter what else we talk about, we've we've peaked in my mind. So that's really good. uh, Ten minutes into um, to a recording session. So um, (laughs) now I am interested to hear people's thoughts about why we have or how we have included epilepsy and the experience of depression in a conversation about neurodiversity because neurodiversity originally started with autism there was a sociologist who made put out the idea that people with autism had differences in their brains that were not deficits but were a part of normal human evolution mm-hmm. And so that idea then sort of got out into the the community or into the the zeitgeist and expanded. And so that's when you really started to look at autism, ADHD, dyslexia. And then even more people began to include other things like bipolar and anxiety and depression. And because neurodiversity is not a medical term, there really isn't a hard and fast, concrete set of disorders, conditions, whatever you want to call them, that make up neurodiversity. In my experience in working with clients, I started off only working with people with autism, but then I realized and discovered through working with more and more people that anybody who came to me under this neurodivergent umbrella probably had problems in one of these areas, in executive function, so being able to just do things, Uh, how they communicated with other people, having a lot of miscommunications, how they felt emotions was could be different uh, or how they processed information could be different. And, you know, social situations were often very challenging and those challenges didn't seem to be limited to people with autism, people with ADHD, people with dyslexia. It really became very clear that there were a lot of people whose brains, for whatever reason, processed information differently. And those differences had similarities to other people that were recognized as being part of this neurodivergent group. So that's really where my thinking started to evolve in that I think a broader, better definition for neurodiversity is 
simply people whose brains process information differently due mm -hmm. to something like one of the, you know, these recognized kind of autism, ADHD, dyslexia, that grouping being gifted or even depression, anxiety, or some of these medical conditions that also alter the way your brain processes information. I think in a hundred years, you know, my hope is that we will have totally kind of changed the way we think of the brain and how we characterize these types of things. So now I feel like we're sort of in our, you know, in our trepanation era and, you know, and, and, and bleeding you to cure disorders when it comes to the brain. Mm -hmm. Now this, I got to say, is not a commonly accepted way to think about neurodiversity, frankly. So we're breaking some ground here and I'm sure there are people screaming at their, at their, uh, you know, whatever listening device they're using mm -hmm. at how incorrect I am about this. So I'd love to get uh, Ellie first. Actually, let's start with your thoughts. And then if we could go to Matt, that would be great. I think a lot of this comes down to the 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 industrial and post-World War II system that we kind of have set up, like from school age up onto, you know, adult age, uh, we are sorted by industrial standards. You know, uh, in school, it doesn't matter if you're better at reading or better at math. What's important is your model year, like wh when you were built. Uh, you know, the, the, the bells in the, the structure of school is built to be similar to how you work in a factory. It was basically trying to incorporate people into the giant machine of industry. And when you have to do that, you standardize really hard because there just isn't the resources, the information, or the understanding of the kind of diversity that we exist in. So we have this standard model of what brains are supposed to look like and how they're supposed to work. And anything for that deviates from that, we just had to shave off or hide or, you know, ignore because you needed to fit into these systems because that was the entirety of society. Um, but now we have better technology, better understanding, uh, fewer human rights somehow, but <laughs> we finally have the capability to acknowledge these kinds of differences. And it's like it's like blue jeans. This is this is something that came up in a lecture that was actually about analysis paralysis or uh, what's the real word for that? Do you know, Jess? You you know, like the adult words for things. I mean, that's that comes in terms of uh, executive function disorders, analysis okay. paralysis. I think about the thing forever, so I never do the thing. Yeah. So decades ago, if you wanted a pair of blue jeans, there was one style of blue jeans and you had to wear them and beat them up and get them to fit you because there was just the one kind of blue jeans. And now there's a bajillion kinds of blue jeans and you can more find one that actually fits you, theoretically, you can find one that fits you and your particular body shape and how you like to wear stuff. And we're finally moving away from the very, very standard model of how everyone should be and kind of starting to accept that there isn't a should necessarily. There is how people are, and how they work best and how they function best. And I think including not just autism, but various other neuro differences into our neuro inclusivity is really huge and important about that. I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what I'm getting from you and what, what I'm hearing from you is that it makes sense, you know, we're, we're understanding now that there are more differences sort of than we thought in the way people's brains work, you know, including how they they, Taken and and those differences are important. And from our perspective, I think the benefit of that is meaning things that will help. Maybe we're created to help a small group of people, like some of the ways that uh, you know, autistic people can find to help get themselves uh, through through the challenges of the day. Those solutions actually can benefit a much wider variety of people than we thought. And it means that there are a lot of common experiences that we wouldn't have thought we would have with other people who didn't kind of fit in our classical definition that we are finding out we actually do have some kind of connection with, which is ultimately the benefit. And I think Matt, that segues nicely to you because as I recall, when you and I started talking about some of your experiences compared to some of the experiences of people that were more classically neurodivergent, we started to see some similarities. Is that, mm -hmm. am I recalling that accurately? You are, you are. So I dealt with 
depression, maybe because of epilepsy, but most likely because my brain processes things weird. I'm like, I'm very good at math and I've always been very gifted at math growing up. Uh, however, that somehow translated into writing for me because I broke down writing into math formulas. Like this goes here, this goes here, this goes here. And I became a very, I'm, I'm not patting myself on the back, a very good writer writing in my own voice because writing is math to me, but it's just the way my brain processes words and processes numbers. Uh, but when we were talking originally, I'd never considered myself neurodiverse. I consider myself cursed with epilepsy and, you know, just surviving. Neuro cursed. Yeah, neuro cursed. <laughs> And I'll just explain because there's so many different types and varieties of epilepsy. Uh, most commonly known as photosensitive, photosensitive epilepsy, where you see strobe lights or flashing lights, your brain shuts down and you seizure. My type of epilepsy is I get overwhelmed by stress. And if there's lack of sleep and there's too much output coming into my brain, into the input, there's a flash on the right side of my brain, there's electrical buildup, and it just goes kapow and it spreads through all my brain. After I wake up and I seizure and I'm just done for two days, like I'm out for a seizure for like 15 seconds, but I don't come to you for about an hour because I'm just kind of like exhausted. So the way my brain processes information, I can overload very easily if there's just too much going on. And in a situation where I lose my job, I feel worthless about uh, lose my job in a mass layoff. I like pointing that out. It was not my <laughs> choice or because of bad work ethic. I was laid off because corporations exist. <laughs> Old man capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> so the stress of that, the stress of being a good father, the stress of being a good husband, trying to find work in journalism during a time where all journalists are being laid off led to me seizuring month after month after month. And mm -hmm. for the first time in my life, two days or two times in one day. So Ooh. when Jessica and I were talking about all this, I was like, I've never considered myself part of that group. And I saw a lot of pushback from other people about epilepsy being part of the neurodivergent tribe. I'm just going to say tribe because it, it, there is tribalism within this. But mm -hmm. as we evolve as a culture, if we remember back to the 90s, I want to say 1991, 1996, someone fact checked me. They expanded what autism meant. And then it was more of a spectrum and not just like autistic. Mm -hmm. And when they had that expansion, we saw that there was a lot more autistic people on that spectrum than we originally thought. And then mm -hmm. horrible people like Andrew Wakefield came out and said, like, vaccines are causing it. And they were all wrong. They just forgot we expanded. They were not. They didn't forget. They just were ignorant as hell. <laughs> At best. They didn't realize that, like, because there were so many more people being diagnosed with autism is because what autism was and the definition had been expanded. And I feel like we saw that also with the LGBT community that expanded on who's included in that. And so we see more of that. That's just how things work. And now with the neurodiversity, things should be expanding and, and will at some point. Uh, and we'll see there's a lot more neurodivergent people. But right now there is pushback against like epilepsy. It's like, well, no, my brain doesn't work the same as a normal person's. I'm kind of one of you. And if you're trying to exclude me from that, like, that's fine, I guess, for now. But like, please realize that. I don't function normally in my brain. I am a I am a gifty gifted kid, messy adult. Bam, nailed that. Name of the thing in the thing. Name of the thing in the that, thing. That all sounds so much about it, it's it's yeah, it's exactly the same as the LGBT thing, and particularly uh Ellie brings up trans stuff, drink. Uh <laughs> particularly um kids turning trans now. And it's it's not that anybody's turning trans and the the the, the trend is at about the same as like left-handedness suddenly exploding when we stopped hitting people for being left-handed. Um, I'm so glad that happened. <laughs> once, once you know that this is an option, once you can see someone presenting themselves as how you are and how you should feel you should be, you take that option. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, once it's like, oh, I can use my left hand. That's 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 okay. Or it's like, oh, my endocrine system doesn't work like a stock human. Like my my body produces testosterone, but it runs way better on estrogen. And so, you know, one shot a week and that's fixed. And it's not because of a trend or a choice or whatever. That's just the weird biology I was born with. 
And I feel like this is all kind of the same thing where, again, we're diversifying. We're not quite so standardized anymore so we can open this up and, pardon my triteness, but be our authentic selves. Yeah. And I, and we, we all knew each other prior to us embracing who we are and being open about who we are. Mm-hmm. Jessica, I knew you before you were uh, diagnosed autistic. Ellie, mm-hmm. I knew you before you transitioned. And I mm-hmm. only really recently was just like, screw it, I'm epileptic. Because you hide those things because you don't want people to look at you differently. Mm-hmm. You, you it, And it sucks. It it eats you up on the inside so bad. I know you both oh my felt God. the same thing. No, you, you uh, will have to put a, a self-harm trigger on this episode. You brought up being stable and on mood stabilizers and not having daily images of self-harm. Mm-hmm. Right after my egg cracked, which is what you say when you realize you're trans, I sat at my desk and I poked the corner of my brain that I shoved the suicidality into mm-hmm. and it was gone. Mm-hmm. It's just gone. That's not an option anymore. It's not a plausible scenario for the future. It's not a thing. And I literally just sat there and hugged myself and laughed out loud for like six or seven straight minutes. Like my throat hurt by the end of that and not having that kind of freedom, not having that kind of capability to be yourself is crushing, even if you don't know it's there. When we talk about autistic masking, which is a topic I'm sure we will tackle many, many, many times on the show. That's the same thing. We know that autistic masking causes irreparable physical and mental harm to people who mm-hmm. engage in it, because that's the practice of really hiding yourself and trying to present yourself as quote unquote normal or trying to present yourself as you feel that you should be in order for other people to look at you as normal. So you're you're really covering up everything about you and pretending to be someone else only for the benefit of other people so that mm-hmm. they perceive you as normal. And in so many instances, that's something that we all engaged in to kind of keep these things at you know it in behind you know behind us and not something that was presented at at the forefront i think one thing for me that was really instrumental in being more comfortable being open about my diagnosis and then also my desire to help other people was the internet and social media, which is right now, I think when we talk about social media, it's a negative connotation a lot of times or a negative part of a conversation. Has social media if played any role in you feeling more comfortable or, or not uh, in terms of being open with your epilepsy, Matt? I mean, like I've done work with like the Epilepsy Foundation, one of the former owners of GameSpot uh, before the one that didn't fire me, but the one that I didn't like. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) They donated $10,000 to the Epilepsy Foundation in Chicago, which is great. That's a a group I've worked with before. I've done stand-up comedy for one of their shows. They did not like me, but that's okay. So that aspect of social media is good, but everything else, like there's so many awful people on Twitter. And at a time I was high profile. I was a verified journalist on Twitter. And people hate journalists on Twitter. (laughs) Oh, my God. So I kept that hidden. I kept to myself a lot. I would occasionally have breakdowns and just go on rants on Twitter. We we talk a bit about masking already. I did a thing which I used to call flipping on the switch, where Uh I was only myself around my wife and my closest friends. Uh They're the only ones that would see real Matt. Everyone else saw Matt on, Matt at eleven. So if you watch videos of me at like San Diego Comic-Con or New York Comic-Con, it's like, hey, guys, we're having a lot of fun here. I would never be like, it's awful. I hated doing that. It's draining. And the only time I felt like I could be really me is around my wife. So when I did comedy as characters on stage, that's like me lashing out and being cathartic and being angry and allowing my real self to be out there, but in a costume and people found it funny but they didn't realize that like I'm unleashing all of this pent up aggression and rage on the audience in Uh form of 
a magician or in form of like a blue collar comedian. <laughs> like it was just that's how I dealt with like not being depressed about who I was because I can't be myself. Mm-hmm. But now I'm myself, so it's great. Whatever. <laughs> yeah now i'm just you know fulfilled by life and actually living and you know whatever it's it's fine one of the things that has that is is very different now than in previous decades is that the people that were assigned these conditions or diagnosed with these deficiencies are now able to communicate what the experience of being inside that brain is like. Whereas previously, and and even now in the diagnostic criteria, it's all about how someone else observes you. I look at Ellie and I assess her behavior and how she does these things. And then I make a determination of how, you know, what, what label she gets. It's only been recently that, people have been able to talk and connect amongst each other about what it's like day to day being in one of these brains. And for me, that is what ultimately will likely expand the definition of neurodiversity more than anything is people connecting their own experiences with each other rather than looking at these kind of disparate conditions on paper and saying, oh, there's no connection. There's no connection here. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, specifically, uh, Douglas Adams talked about this uh, around the turn of the century back in the late 1900s about how just the form of communication that we have available to us has changed based on technology. And here we got the social media thing again, because we had one-to-one communication. You can always talk to one other person. And we had one-to-many communication, which someone broadcasting, someone on the radio, something on TV telling you a thing. But with the advent of the internet, we, for the first time, had many-to-many communication. So that with so many more sources of information, of communication, of all of these people being, you know, their own little production company, uh, one tweet at a time, we are getting to hear these different voices and we are getting to hear the variation in the way our brains work. And like you said, it was finally somebody saying what's going on in my head because that person was not going to be put on the seven o'clock news or 11 o'clock news. When was news on? I never watched it. 10 o'clock central time. Okay, so uh, is that like five? It's moving on. <laughs> <laughs> it goes back to, yeah, it's it's. I don't want to like apologize for a complete lack of representation of diversity, in particular neurodiversity, and you know, gender queer and whatnot. But it kind of just makes sense when you only have like thirty people who are broadcasting information it's pretty unlikely that one of them is going to be talking about their epilepsy or they're going to be talking about their transness or their autism or whatever, because that's not the kind of people who would succeed in that kind of structured environment. And then once you remove those limits, once you open up that dam, you suddenly have exposure to all of these different ways of living and someone can go, oh my God, that's me too. Oh wait, that's okay. Oh, cool. And I think that's, as, as much harm as social media has caused, I think it's absolutely wonderful that we're getting that many-to-many communication, and it's so validating. Uh, Jessica, that's the question you kind of asked me earlier, but I, th- this is the first time I'm really talking about epilepsy with anybody, really. So I make I went down a rabbit hole there. But I will say, like, community-wise on for being an epileptic is not something I have explored after my son was born and had my first seizure in front of him, I, I did reach out to Epilepsy Foundation and found a support group. Yeah. But I found myself after a few months realizing that people had it a lot worse than me and being very upset about it because there's not much you can do other than like try new meds with a doctor. Uh-huh. And then there was a there were a few personalities within that group that I really didn't mesh with. And I didn't want to leave a support group feeling steamrolled by someone else all the time and it just it, it wasn't for me there was a lot of praying because it always took places in church and at churches and i that for me the churches are great community centers i am not into religion at all 
but they are great community centers. I'll put that out there. But there was a lot of praying, and I felt a little uncomfortable with that. And again, being steamrolled by other personalities, people who have it worse, it, it left me. I just didn't. I didn't connect with those people. Uh, I was the youngest person there by twenty years, huh. and so I've never reached out for that community. I would love to be a person who is uh, hopeful to the, to that community and inspire them. But I haven't found that community for me online because. Again, I've had to hide. I felt like I had to hide being epileptic for so long because I don't want people to see. I didn't want people to see me differently. Now, don't care. Hmm? Go nuts. I'm still a good writer. I don't care. Do you think, what do you think has contributed most to your change in attitude on that topic? Because that's a pretty big shift from hiding to just putting it out there. What's different now? Um, Having a good neurologist who is trying new medications with me. Who's put me on mood stabilizers. I'm on like five meds right now. And we're trying, and they just put me on a new one that stabilizes my mood because I was suicidal every day or suicidal thoughts every day. Ellie is counting <laughs> on her hand. All of those, she's counting all of her meds. Oh no, it's med wars. <laughs> but having ha, a good doctor. I'm up to eight. Take that. Oh, you win. <laughs> uh, but having a good neurologist who not only is like, putting me on meds slowly, getting me there gradually to where I need to be, looking at baselines for what these meds are are doing to me and how they're helping me or hurting me, just trying to figure things out. But also him being emotionally there saying, you know, like, you don't have it that bad. We're going to make things right. This is normal. It's not normal, but it's like, it's okay to be on this journey that sucks for a while. It's going to suck for a couple of years. And that's okay. That's normal. Just know, mm-hmm. like, at the end of this, things are going to be great, which is mm-hmm. good to hear from having uh, a brain disorder or a malfunction in my brain where I could die every day, any day, if not medicated from a seizure. It could happen. I've mm-hmm. been living with my mortality since I was 18 or 17, if you want to count the first one that was free. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I've been I've been so nihilistic for so long and and so cynical for so long because I know I could die any moment. When I had my kid, that changed. I was like, I can't die. Uh, I mean, eventually we all do, but I can't die right now. <laughs> Says you. Child. <laughs> Be immortal out of spite. It was my neurologist that really was like, made me think differently about life, made me think differently about my own attitude. I've always been positive, but now it's like real positive. It's not like light switch on positive. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's having a good doctor. That's all it is. Have a doctor that doesn't suck. Have a doctor that actually cares about your well-being. Mm-hmm. Can we sum that up as like validation? Yeah. Just so, somebody going, yeah, no, this is a thing. And yeah, I know you're suffering and we're going to do our best to reduce that. Yeah. And it might, it might get worse before it gets better, but it's going to get better. Yeah. And I'm at over 200 days seizure free at this point. Hey. Okay. But again, I'm on so many meds, but I'm feeling great. But you know what? If we add up your seizure-free days and then Ellie and my sobriety days, like we're talking some some real numbers for sure because we both quit drinking uh, about the same time. So um, you know, we've got some we've got some yeah. good streaks going, got some positive things happening in, in everybody's life. I've also been sober since March when I was told you can't drink anymore because you're on all these meds, and I was like, that sucks. I'll drink Lacroix. It's kind of like beer with no alcohol, and it's been great ever since. <laughs> We switched to kombucha, uh, which okay. feels like alcohol in a lot of a lot of ways. I think technically there are trace amounts, but it tastes bad enough that it seems like we actually had some <laughs> we had some kombucha the other day that tasted exactly like Malort. That's how bad kombucha oh. can get. I know. I, oh, Chicagoans. I'm, Chicagoans. I'm, I'm convinced that there is no actual caffeine in kombucha. It's just the fact that every time you take a sip, you go. Oh. That just wakes you up out of sheer trauma. <laughs> your your brain goes into uh, to whiplash. But that's uh, also part of the journey, too, is when you, for all of us, when mm-hmm. you're on new medications, you have to change your life. You have to change mm-hmm. your lifestyle in general. Like, I can only have one cup of coffee a day, and I love caffeine. It is my bestest friend next to my wife. Mm-hmm. Depends. Uh, I 
loved having a beer. I loved having micheladas. Like that was my thing. Drinking a couple of micheladas with my friends while I played D and D. I I really enjoyed smoking weed. I can't do any of those anymore, and mm-hmm. it sucks. But like, you learn to deal. You learn to change routine. You learn to cope with that because it's for the betterment of your own health. Well, plus, mm-hmm. I think a big part of at least mine was realizing that it's not necessarily that I loved vodka. I loved feeling okay. Yeah. And there's cheaper and easier and much more healthy ways to feel okay. And, you know, I don't need to drop three cocktails to feel okay Mm -hmm. if I'm on mood stabilizers and I stick to a schedule and I eat regularly, (laughs) you know? Especially at a comedy show where you're already feeling nervous and anxious and don't want to be around most of these people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't need to stand outside smoking to, you know, have some meaningful connection to people and feel like I'm loved. I'm married. I have friends. It's great. Well, that's to me one of the benefit of getting a diagnosis was I figured out then the cause of all the things that I was trying to medicate, self-medicate away. You know, mm-hmm. when I was drinking, when I was taking taking pills, often prescribed, maybe not to me, uh, but prescribed <laughs> to someone, I realized, okay, first of all, I'm not imagining this feeling of being different and this feeling of being alien and this feeling of watching everybody do things so easily that are so hard for me. Oh my God, right. Dealing with a lot of that and just dealing with the trauma of being told that my emotions were wrong, that what I was thinking and feeling, that was not correct. And people saying, oh, we want you to be yourself, but then saying, no, that's not how you should be. (laughs) You know, just all of those things, that is a lot of what I was trying to get away from when I was, um, when I was sort of treating, treating my own, uh, my own conditions. And so that has made it a lot easier to, to be sober because I found that there are better ways for me to deal with those things and with the anxiety and with the depression and then all of the other things that come with uh, with neurodivergence uh, um there are not necessarily perfect perfect ways or perfect solutions but they're better than being you know being being drunk and and on on pills as fun as that was uh, for everybody but matt i did have a question for you which is i and i fell into this boat as well which is thinking of epilepsy really in terms of the the medical obviously i know people who are epileptic have seizures but I think when you and I talked, what some of the things that I was struck by were the sort of non-physical ways that epilepsy can affect people, um, or if they're they're physical, more in in terms of like, you know, exact just symptoms other than the seizure itself. In general, kind of leading up to seizures, I'll get nauseous for a few days. I'll have what I have called, and my neurologist likes the term, uh, emotional roller coastering where I don't feel normal. I am either the happiest I've ever been or I need to die. And I and I uh-huh. don't and I and I mean that in a funny way, but I also mean that in a very realistic way. I want to die or I'm the maddest I've ever been for no reason. Uh-huh. And not even before a seizure. Like I'm roller coastering, I was roller coastering almost every single day. But before the seizure it's worse. After the seizure it's it's worse. You know like I'll break down and cry because I for wasn't nice to my son and had to tell him put down the phone and hang out with me. I'll just start crying because I felt bad for being kind of stern with my son, a thing parents have to be. Mm -hmm. You feel bad about yourself and then you feel worse because you're feeling bad. Mm -hmm. Like it's a never ending pit of despair and existential dread. And that's something I kept very, very hidden, very, very well for a long time. And because you keep it hidden, it makes you feel worse. Uh So, And that's a big part of epilepsy, depending on what type you have, is that you're always in an emotional state of flux. You're never truly happy. Mm -hmm. And I feel with the meds I'm on now, I feel like a normal person. And I cried the other day because of stress. And my wife's like, no, this is normal. Like the amount of stress you're under this past week, it's normal to be this upset and cry. And I was like, okay, cool. Because I don't know how emotions work in normal brains. Mm-hmm. Would we call that emotional dysregulation? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is such a hallmark of so many, uh, even of the classic neurodiversity and characterizations like ADHD deals um, classically with a lot of emotional dysregulation. Autism deals with a lot of emotional dysregulation. But even when you look at other areas of uh, neurodivergence, such as being a highly sensitive person, for example, one of the hallmarks of many neurodivergent experience is that emotional dysregulation or disproportional responses, disproportionate responses to emotional stimuli. So maybe getting more upset than you people would expect, or, you know, kind of having some, um, you know, classic laughing at, at funerals, you know, finding your, your emotions don't necessarily match a given situation or having anger issues or rage issues, you know, really kind of living in some of the negative emotions much more strongly than people would anticipate or expect. Those are hallmarks of so many neurodivergent conditions. For some reason, happiness doesn't happen like that a lot. Like I haven't had, uh, I haven't read anything that says excessive happiness is a, is a hallmark feature. Um, but I guess those people don't write books or don't, uh, <laughs> don't, don't complain about things. But the, the experience of emotional dysregulation is something that I think is really something that a lot of us don't realize that we're battling with, but at some level, I think you look at yourself reacting to certain situations and you know that you are not reacting in what a quote unquote normal way or the way that Mm -hmm. you should. So, you know, and there's something often about you that feels out of control, right? Like Mm -hmm. I am so angry. I am throwing things. And that is not normal. When I was just reorganizing underneath the bathroom sink, it is not normal for them to just take everything, say, screw it and throw all that stuff away. That is not a normal way to respond. And then you get angry at yourself or you get upset with yourself or you're confused by your own emotional state or emotional reactions. You look at other people and you go, oh, they don't react to things like this the way I am. And that is such a universal experience in so many different ways across just about any neurodivergent identity, whether classically identified or under some of the the newer definitions. And people who don't feel that way. People who don't experience emotional dysregulation, that to me is one of the biggest areas of misunderstanding between kind of us and and them. Mm -hmm. Because to an outsider, that looks so irrational. And it Mm -hmm. looks like, oh, you're so, you're overly sensitive. You just need to learn to take feedback better. It's a business skill. Um, You know, you overreact to so many things. You're histrionic, overly, just all of these things. uh, And then having to deal with receiving those messages too, just adds to the the dysregulation. So there isn't to me a much bigger gulf between neurotypical and neurodivergent than people who experience emotional dysregulation and don't experience emotional dysregulation. Matt, do you have any thoughts on that? I would, oh, I, I, I had rage issues for a long, 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 long time. And I didn't think anything was wrong with that. But then I learned that there was something wrong with that. Why am I angry constantly? Why is all mm-hmm. my writing angry? And I mm-hmm. would turn that anger into sadness instead. I couldn't turn it into happiness for some reason. I couldn't turn it into joy. I turn it into uh, sadness. And I don't think like a lot of people realize that like it is so so tiring to deal with that it takes it out of you Mm -hmm. and i translated that into writing if you read the jokes that i wrote this year and i'm not going back on stage by any means sometimes i just need to get it out get the Uh anger out but i put it on a page so it's constructive in a way and i sent them to a couple friends matt drefke who we both know and then my friend sarah clancy and they both read it and they were like, this is the angriest I have ever heard you. And I'm like, well, that's how I, I have to get it out. And it's so hard because normal people, normal, I'm going to put normal in quotes because we're all kind of probably on some sort of spectrum. No, I don't think normal people, they just, the emotions go away. For yes. many of us, it stays and it festers. And it yes. 
all you need to do is find the outlet for it. And for me, it was writing. I have 30 notebooks up here, some from high school, in fact, and it is just filled with just anger and rage. But I would rather do that personally than take it out on somebody else because I take it out on somebody else. That makes me feel bad because I hurt somebody else and I don't mm-hmm. want to spiral. If I write it in a notebook. All I've heard is my hand from all the writing. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. If you've met one neurodivergent person, you've met one neurodivergent person. A lot of my emotional dysregulation wasn't necessarily a roller coaster or a daily up and down. It was that if I was feeling something, that was all I was feeling for days and days to where like I I didn't believe it when two other people had like a disagreement or something. And then they were just like, let's put this aside and just continue to work because we need to work. I'm like, oh, you're just lying and hiding the fact that you are boiling with rage for days, if not weeks. And then after mood stabilizers and uh, hormone replacement therapy, like I will have a big emotion. And sometimes I will flop like a teenager onto our bed and, you know, go, Jess, I'm never gonna get boobs. (laughs) And she'll, she'll, you know, she'll sit there and talk to me for a minute. And after, I don't know, five, 10 minutes, it will go away. And I will feel better. And then you're sitting there going, well, I I had like two more hours of stuff to to like talk you down with. And I'm like, no, it's okay. I'm fine. What should we make for dinner? At it is it's the emotions don't just sit there and hold you by the neck. They show up and they go, Hey, I am feeling a thing because a thing happened. For me, in the the thing that that made the biggest difference when I started to learn more about emotional dysregulation is in business, you know, and and corporate work is where most of my uh, experience is. In business, we teach people that there is a right way and a wrong way to take negative feedback. Uh. And that in order to be professional, you need to be able to listen to negative feedback. You need to be able to accept it instantly, to discuss it rationally, and to immediately apply it. And we teach that as a skill. And we teach people that in order to be professional, you have to do that. And we teach managers that if their employees don't do that, then that employee is unprofessional or bad or wrong. And learning a lot more about emotional dysregulation, I realized, no, that is actually very discriminatory because Uh there are so many people whose brains simply do not allow them to do that because that is not the way their brains work. Their brains go into that fight or flight or or fawn response. And a lot of the things that would fall under neurodivergence that have emotional dysregulation, automatically those people then have disqualifying skills or unprofessional personalities where they can't succeed in business because they're not able to respond to negative feedback in this classically accepted correct way and so again i think these universal experiences are things where the more we broaden this definition of neurodiversity the more we can learn from each other as to how to help each other in these you know these experiences but also the more we expand the definition for everyone else as to what is normal and acceptable and good and okay. And so we don't have to disqualify somebody who has to work at home to limit their, their, right. And then, you know, we don't need to uh, disqualify people as, as bad for a business if they react emotionally, or if they have a strong emotional reaction to something, because it isn't bad. It isn't a sickness. It is normal in a lot of people. And it's not something that you can change no matter how much you you train. It's just something that that exists. So I think um, for the for this show, our definition of neurodiversity is going to remain expansive. And because I think we can make a lot of people more included and and better in a lot of ways just by by doing that. So I'm so thrilled to have had producer Matt on the microphone today, mainly because I haven't had to keep up with the chat uh, and and getting notes the whole show. This has been this has been really fun. We'll we'll see how it how it turns out at the end of the day. But I think 
our goal is to have um, producer Matt on uh, on a, a regular regular basis um, because the perspective that you bring, being a father, uh, something that obviously neither uh, Ellie or I we do not have children, so we we don't have that perspective. But also, kind of this uh, outside perspective of being epileptic is is really i think going to be a good perspective as we as we move forward so thank you so much for for joining us on mic today you're welcome i just want to point something out that no one could see when you said being a parent and then ellie and i don't have children <laughs> ellie you you leaned back head <laughs> on your chest with the biggest <laughs> look of relief <laughs> i will say that parenting is not for everyone and that's okay in but my defense it, it was it was specifically mentioning that you were a father and that specific kind that of scary. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's a mask thing that always upset me. It was because it's 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 an inherently masculine thing. And then you have to be a father. You have to be a dad. You have to throw footballs and things. And my brain hates <laughs> doing mask stuff because it makes me feel dysphoric. Like this, that's why I was making jokes during my vasectomy. And like, apparently cis dudes don't do that. Like, apparently cis dudes have some anxiety about getting snipped. And I'm just like, can we just get rid of the whole thing and just make it more aerodynamic just for like, <laughs> like drag, you know, when I go swimming? No, not that kind of drag, like water. I think we'll we'll have to add uh, childhood trauma to the list of upcoming topics for sure, <laughs> because Wait, I think why? there's definitely some of that there. Um, but I think this is a good place to wrap up. Yeah. So... Matt, anything that you would like to plug, where can people find you? You can find me on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash I'm Matt Elfring. That's I-M-M-A-T-E-L-F-R-I-N-G. I do some fun writing on there. And I host, uh, also host a podcast called Casual Yelling. It's an interview show. And occasionally I do some videos where I uh, editorialize something and just kind of talk for a little bit. Uh, and if you want to find me anywhere else, it's I'm Matt Elfring pretty much everywhere. But Patreon and uh, the Casual Yelling Podcast. Jessica, awesome. anything you'd like to plug? Uh, I would love if people came to visit my website at coachjessicamichaels.com. There are links to a lot of great resources. People can book a session with me. I have me come speak at their organization and also find a lot of other great media to watch and learn from and laugh at, which is, I think, the most important thing. So coachjessicamichaels.com. And that is going to do it for us today. I have been Coach Jessica Michaels. I have been Ellie Michaels. I've been Metal Frame. <laughs> Take care of each other out there.